This is a Mortarbox Media Podcast. For more podcasts and to learn how we can help you create your own, visit mortarboxmedia.com. Hey, welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. I am your host, Adam Rosted, here with another episode with a couple of great stories that you will not want to miss. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you could do us a favor and hit the subscribe button while you're there, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts app or wherever you can do those things. That helps so much you wouldn't believe it. Also, if you want to play a bigger part in what we do here at Madison Story Slam, you can go to patreon.com slash Madison Story Slam. On today's episode, we've got two great stories. One from Pat Schneider and her experience as a cancer patient. But before that, we're hearing from Dave Nelson and all about how now is the moment. This is the time to stand up to bullies. Hey, I want to give you a heads up that on Friday, March 29th, 2019, that's this week, we are helping put on an event called Tragedy Plus Time Equals Comedy. We're doing that with Midwest Indie Comedy. You can head to either that Facebook page or our Facebook page to find the event. It's going to be at the Nomad World Pub here in Madison, Wisconsin on East Wilson Street, and it's going to be a great time. You will not want to miss it. Also, our next Story Slam event is Saturday, April 20th at the Wilmar Center here in Madison, Wisconsin. The theme is secondhand, so come tell stories that might not be yours but are still great nonetheless. All right, that's everything I got. Here's Dave Nelson. I do not have great stories of courage. Uh, We've heard some really tremendous stories tonight. I have little stories of courage, small things that have happened, and I'm also blessed with a ridiculous memory for old stories. So my first story of bravery, there's two of them, happens when I'm two years old. And I remember every bit of this. We lived on an apartment building that was shaped like a U. It was a big street here, grass here, buildings along the sides. And we lived right over here on this side. I don't know how we remember that. We stayed there till I was four, but I remember we had a ground floor apartment. Now, on the other side of this green strip is a busy street, really busy. And on the other side of that busy street, the most beautiful hill I've ever seen in my life because I was three, and that was the hill I was not allowed to go to. It was across a busy street. Well, my parents watched over me. Like, you know, it was, this would have been the early 70s, so they didn't watch over you like they do now. They kind of let you alone. And the door was open. And I'm in my diaper and nothing else. And I swear to you, I'm toe-headed, the whitest thing anybody has ever seen, and I can see the green grass, and I can see the street, and I can see the hill, and I think, now, this is your chance. Okay, I don't know if I said now, this is your chance, but I felt something like that. And I started booking it. You know, I, I don't know how you run when you're two, but it's like that. And I remember the feel of the wind and the cold air on my chest. We're in New Jersey. I don't know what time of year it is. It's not snowing. And I'm on my way. And it feels brave and it feels good. It felt like freedom. I can remember running. I could hear my... Don't worry. Don't make it to the street. Don't worry. 
I can remember knowing my dad was right behind me, right? And I know he's going to catch me. I'm not going to make it. And I think, just run. And I can remember his hands grabbing my back and lifting me off the ground. And I'm still running. (laughs) And I feel good. I feel brave. And that was just a great feeling. Now, I cannot remember another brave act for nine more years. So I wasn't a daredevil. I was a clumsy kid. But let's go forward. We've moved from New Jersey to California. And it's the sixth grade. And there is a guy in the sixth grade. His name is J.R. Stromboli. Okay, it's not really Stromboli. It's kind of sounded like that. But I'm still scared of this guy, so I don't want to say his real name. He, he was six foot tall. I'm six four. He was six foot tall in the sixth grade. And I cannot tell you how many times he beat me up. This is the 70s, 80s. You just got to beat people up back then. Right? It's like, you, do you remember this time? You just got beat up. And you went home and you said, I got beat up. And your mom cleaned you up and she didn't call the teachers or anything. You just got beat up. And, and he wasn't the meanest kid. He didn't beat you up like you got hurt, but he gave you the noogies, and he put your head in the dirt. He made you tell how great he was before he let you back up. And he did a, a lot. And I really didn't like J.R. Stromboli. And he didn't just do it to me. He did it to a lot of kids. And one day, my friend Mikey Karcher, Mike Karcher, and was there, and J.R. had him on the blacktop in a headlock, and was probably nugging and twisting it. And I don't know if any of you know this, but headlocks, the big thing you're trying to do is get under the chin so you can choke the kid. And I could see him working his elbow down there to get in there. And I think, now, <laughs> this is it. I call back that brave kid, in the, at two years old, and I muster up his spirit because his spirit hasn't come back since then in nine years. And I stand up and I yell, Now! I don't know exactly what I said, but it was something like, Rise! All of you! Mikey Karcher is in trouble! And this has happened to all of us. And we will not take it anymore. I swear I said something like that. And it must have been pretty good. Because Tatsumi Arakawa comes around the corner. Todd Simmons comes around that way. I see Michael Collins. I see Todd Haskins. I see all these kids. All these victims. I'm 6'4 now. I've been working out. I'm still scared of J.R. Stromboli. But I'm little then, and we're all little. And you know what? We form a circle around J.R. Stromboli. And I don't know exactly what J.R. said as we gathered around him and kind of did this and looked at each other. But it was something like, come on! Because in the sixth grade, in the 70s, there's nobody watching you. And you can just, you can just beat each other up. And JR is right there, and we're looking, and we all know the first one to move is going to get his butt kicked. So I think to myself, yeah, and I want to be honest, I don't remember the two-year-old at this time, but his spirit is in me. 
and I run straight at J.R. Romanoli, who by now has thrown Mikey Karcher to the ground, and Mikey has crawled over and joined the circle. And I'm running, and I'm going to punch J.R. right in the mouth, because it's 1980, and you could punch people in the mouth in 1980. <laughs> and I go to punch him, and as I'm punching him, I think, if you punch him, he's going to punch you. So no, I slap him. <laughs> right across the face, and just keep running. <laughs> right by him. Slap. I slap the mic, but I don't know what happened. I, the, the circle parts to let me through. And I hear J.R. Romanoli, like that feeling of my dad, except my dad's going to pick me up and call me a little Dickens or something, and J.R. is going to hurt me. And I'm running, and I see the fence. And if you can get to the fence and you can get out of the fence, you've broken the biggest rule in school, way more important than punching people. And if I can get outside, JR is going to have to go out to get me, and maybe he won't do that. So I get there, and the fences are chained in to keep us inside because they're not watching us, so if they chain the fence, that's pretty good. And I just slip out of the cha chain, kind of gracefully for me, and I'm about to go. And JR is too big, and he can't get under the chain link. Right? He can't force it. And I'm running, and I turn around to look, and I don't know, 300 kids? <laughs> Just get him from behind. <laughs> I look back, and like Tatsumi Arakawa is there, he's up on top, and Jason Yoakam has a knee, and Marky Karcher's trying to get him too. And we didn't really hurt him that bad. But, you know, some teacher must have seen this. And nobody came. Nobody came. Now I will tell you, I will tell you that it is likely that I got beat up by J.R. Stromboli sometime in the future. But my brain has put that aside. And the story ends there. With us rising up with courage. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave, for sharing that story about J.R. Stromboli. And to our listeners, if you caught J.R.'s real name during that story, don't tell him that Dave shared this story, because Dave is still afraid of J.R. Hey, if you've never been to one of our live storytelling events, you are missing out. But if you can't make it to the live event at Wilmar Center, you can always log on to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Madison Story Slam the third Saturday of each month at 7 p.m. Central Time. And you can tune in live to the Facebook video stream to hear all the great stories as we're hearing them at the Wilmar Center. Up next, here's Pat Schneider. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here tonight to tell you my story of courage. We're kind of a on a theme here because it's another story about cancer. May say something about who, gets, who feels called to tell their story in the frame of courage. My journey here started on July 25th when I was waiting in the consultation room of the Cancer Care Center to hear the results of a biopsy of a possible recurrence of a cancer I've been treated for a year and a half earlier. As the clock slipped by, 45, then 50 minutes past my appointment time, I saw a pair of shoes in the gap between the door to the room and the floor move across, then stop, 
the sound of the chart being pulled from the rack beside the door, and the door opened. The doctor entered. Doctor, let's call him Doctor Why. Cut right to the chase. This cancer will end your life, he said. Well, my anxiety had been rising pretty steadily over the time that I was waiting for him, and with these words, it shot right through the roof. I recall this odd feeling as if I were watching myself sitting in the chair in that room and I was squirming around and mumbling and complaining because it had been so hard to get them to test for the recurrence that he was announcing now. Why are you getting emotional, said Dr. Y. You just told me I'm dying. Everybody dies, said Dr. Y. What about a second opinion, I asked. You don't need a second opinion, Dr. Y said. If there were better medicines, we'd be using them. What about a drug trial? You couldn't do a drug trial, said Dr. Y. That requires patients to do additional things, do additional tests. You don't have what it takes to do that. I left that encounter with Dr. Y in a daze. I remember still feeling oddly removed from myself and eerily, wearily calm as I called people to tell them what had happened while driving home. Since that day, I have been scared shitless, afraid of dying, afraid to hope, afraid not to hope. It has taken every bit of courage I can screw up every day just to live. I'm a person who always wanted to be courageous. When I was a kid, I thought that meant standing up for what was right, standing up to the bully at school, to the teacher who picked favorites, to my parents who just didn't understand. Is that courage? After the 9-11 attacks, I had this fantasy. I was going to go to Afghanistan, where Osama bin Laden was hiding up in the hills with his men, and put on a burqa, and as a woman, I'd be, well, virtually invisible to these men, and under the guise of serving tea, I would get near to him, then pull out my machine gun and blow him away. Kind of a grandiose idea of courage. But since my encounter with Dr. Y, I have learned about the quiet courage of living with terminal illness, of confronting a health care institution that holds my life in its hands, and about searching for that balance between hope and despair. It's a different kind of courage. Dr. Y's shaming of me was so successful that it took weeks for me to realize what had happened and that I had somehow to find a way to live to get out of the frantic state that I was in. And I was lucky about that. Starting with a massage therapist whom I'd worked with for years, I gradually built a network of complementary care providers and practices that sustains me now. There's massage, there's acupuncture, there's psychotherapy, there's meditation and prayer and journal writing and a support group, 
all kinds of things that really help me feel as though I matter and at the least I can control how I live my life. I'm a person who doesn't have family in the state or a partner, but I turn to family and friends for their help and I am so deeply grateful and moved by the loving care and kindness and generosity they have shown me. And some of you are here tonight. Thank you. <clears throat> I've heard people say, you know, when there's a tragedy, you find out who your friends are. But it hasn't been that way for me. For me, it's been kind of this wonderful thing about seeing just who shows up, sometimes very unexpectedly, to help. And again, I'm deeply grateful. Living with terminal cancer is like living with a bomb in your chest. They have told me it's there and it will go off and kill me and soon, but I don't know when and I don't know how and I don't know if any of the things I do to make my life livable change that in any way or how it changes that. That takes courage to live with that. Some of the things I do to support myself in, in, in my wellness also take courage. That support group I belong to, it involves meeting with people where we talk about our battles and trials with cancer and you come to know one, each other, one another and care about each other. But then of course, people get sick again and they'll die. As I will one day get sick again and die. As much as I love it, it takes courage to walk into that room every week. I have a new doctor at the Cancer Care Center. Uh, she doesn't paint any rosy or prognosis, but she treats me like a human being. And that's important. I filed a complaint against Dr. Y and the, and the physician's assistant who was monitoring me after my first round of treatment but did not order a simple common blood test for a marker for my cancer. And when I had symptoms last summer and told her we should take, suggested we should take a scan, she absolutely refused. It was my primary, primary care physician who ordered the scan that revealed the extensive tumor last summer. In response to my complaint, the patient relations office of the hospital said that, well, they had followed guidelines and at any rate, it didn't matter what they had done to monitor me because I was dying anyway. It didn't matter how you monitored me. If it didn't matter, why the fuck did you have me come in for appointments every three months if it didn't matter? Treatment like that made me feel as if not only didn't I have a chance to live, but I didn't deserve a chance to live. I knew I had to find a way to get out of the terror and despair where Dr. Y had left me. Living with cancer, living with terminal illness, is just like living, only harder. You have to do the same tasks. I have to pay the bills. And besides, you know, getting those tasks done, there's the question of where the money comes from when you're not working and it's a smaller stream pouring in. I have to do the laundry, but now sometimes I'm grateful that I'm able to still do the laundry. It really affects planning. 
I mean, should I plan a vacation for this summer? Should I put a deposit down? I mean, I had to agonize over whether to buy a pair of boots, even though the ones I had were raggy, because this might be my last winter. I bought the boots. <laughs> And I did not save them for good, <laughs> like I would have in other years. There's also the, the big tasks that I've put off for decades, getting a will written, <laughs> confronting with real seriousness what is the meaning of life and what comes after it, and deciding for once and for all if I believe there is a God and if there is, what does she want of us? It all keeps me busy and my mind off the diagnosis, but that terror creeps back every once in a while. 4 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon, the middle of Sunday night, there it is, like a weight on my chest. Sometimes I want to get up and scream. I want to run away, but there's nowhere to run because the bomb is inside me. There are moments when even still, I cannot believe this is happening to me. I'm a person who was terrified of public speaking for most of my life. <laughs> Some years ago, I got involved in Toastmasters and found out that I loved it. I just really loved it. So when I started, when I felt called to do this and began to plan for it, I began to wonder, you know, why? I mean, it's anxiety producing. Believe me, I have enough anxiety right now, you know. And I figure people don't really want to hear about terminal illness. I mean, I don't want to talk about it. I mean, I've just snubbed people on the street when I meet them because I didn't want to have to explain that obviously bald head underneath the chemo cap or a wig. But there are reasons for people with terminal illness to speak out because we don't have voices. We are silenced by a cultural convention, no a taboo on talking about our plight because no one wants to face their own mortality. We are silenced by healthcare institutions that want to be able to offer whatever care they want to us. It doesn't matter because we're dying anyway. And we are silenced by our own fear. And then, eventually, our physical frailty. I was talking about speaking to this with one of my complimentary healthcare providers, who told me that in Chinese medicine, tradition, traditionally in the villages, there was a practice that when a person became ill, the whole community gathered around them. And the person who was sick would tell them their story and receive their compassion. And so, here I am tonight with you telling you my story. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Pat, for being courageous and sharing that story with us. It meant a ton that you would get on stage and share, just open your chest up and share something so deeply personal with us. And I know that I grew from it and learned from it. And I hope that everybody in our audience uh, feels the same way. One more final thanks to both Pat and Dave for sharing their stories and helping us build a community through storytelling. If you want to be a part of what we're doing here at Madison Story Slam, the best way to do that is to come to one of our live events. And our next live event is Saturday, April 20th at the Wilmar Center here in Madison, Wisconsin. The theme is secondhand because I recognize that we all have stories that might not belong to us, but are great anyways and are worth hearing. So come tell and hear some great stories that might be just secondhand. Uh, let's see what else you can go to patreon.com slash Madison story slam. If you want to help us financially become a monthly patron and that helps a whole lot. Just a reminder that if you want to see either of these stories performed on video, you can head to the show notes and click the YouTube links and you can see what we saw at the Wilmar center. That's it for today. Have a great day, and as always, I love you.